Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please. 1 Corinthians 11. Some of you may be wondering, uh, what happened to Matthew? I think somebody asked me that a little bit ago. Did you finish and I missed it? No, I didn't finish. But Lord willing, we will finish, but eh, we're taking a little bit of a pause, a little break. There's been some things going on around here that have, have uh, interrupted the normal flow. I'm also uh, planning to uh, take a couple of weeks vacation this month. Easter is coming, being of April. And so I just didn't want to launch into chapter 23 of Matthew until I could have time to stay with it and develop it. So, so rest assured, uh, we haven't forgotten about Matthew's gospel. We finished 22. We'll pick up 23 right after Easter and, and move forward from there. But in the meantime, there are some, some various topics and things that uh, I think would be good for us to uh, look at together. Some of it is by way of review. But uh, as uh, Peter says, it, it's no trouble to him to remind uh, his readers of things a second time. And it's no trouble to me to remind you of uh, some of these things that we hold in common. Jesus left his church with two ceremonies. Two ceremonies that, that powerfully portray both the means and the results of his saving work on our behalf. Two ceremonies. Baptism and communion. Baptism and communion. It is through baptism that the new follower of Jesus Christ, the disciple of Christ, publicly portrays and proclaims their allegiance to Christ. Going through the water of baptism, symbolically identifying that union that now exists with Jesus Christ in both his death burial, and resurrection. That is the reason why we believe that immersion, baptism, that is the full submersion under the water and coming up again, uh, best pictures the reality of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, because we are born again into a new and living hope only once, then uh, baptism, of course, is a ceremony that is not to be repeated. It is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And it generally occurs, or should occur, as soon as someone makes a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to make it public through the waters of baptism. Now, communion, on the other hand, is a different ceremony. Communion, or the Lord's table, is a regular activity. It is a regular activity, and it speaks of the profound reality of our ongoing union with Jesus Christ. It is by virtue of our faith union with Christ that all spiritual blessings flow to us. It is a vital union. It is a union that places us not only in Uh, into Christ himself, but also into the body of Christ and thus in union with each other. All the believers together in this spiritual union. 
Now, baptism and communion are physical activities. They are physical activities, but they have a deep spiritual significance. They are not to be entered into in a cavalier manner. They are not to be entered into irreverently. They are a means, not the means, but they are a means, along with reading and meditating upon the scriptures by which the Spirit of God confers gospel grace upon his people, his children. And it's a serious thing to enter into the Lord's table together. And because it is so serious, the Apostle Paul addresses this in his letter to the church here at Corinth. Because the church at Corinth needed some correction. They needed a lot of correction, actually. But they needed correction in this important area of Christian worship. The Corinthian assembly was fraught with problems. Fraught with problems. They were incredibly gifted and blessed, and yet they were incredibly messed up. They were factious. They were undisciplined. They were regularly challenging the Apostle Paul's authority and trying his patience. He loved them, and yet they were most unlovable. Now, their unruliness manifested itself in in many, many different ways. And, of course, reading 1 Corinthians points some of those out. But not the least of which is the whole meaning and purpose of the Lord's table of communion. So I thought it would be really good for us this morning to take a look at this passage together and to do so in preparation for our own celebration of the Lord's table. And I want to to look with you at verses 17 through 34, and in it there is a a threefold progression of Paul's corrective to this church. And I do it for all of our sakes— so that we may not be guilty of approaching this important ceremony in an unworthy way. In an unworthy way. So, let's take a look. We're going to have to move pretty quickly here, but we've got a lot of material we want to cover so that we still have time to celebrate the table together. But let's look first at uh, verses 17 through 22, and I've Call this section here a perverse problem. There is a perverse problem in Corinth. Follow along. Paul says, but in giving this instruction, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you 
In this I will not praise you. The early church met together often, regularly. And as they met together regularly, we are told in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, that essentially four main activities characterized their meetings together. It was the studying of the scriptures. They came together to study the word of God. They came together to enjoy the fellowship of the spirit of God. They came together to take the Lord's Supper together, the breaking of the bread. And they came together to pray. Now, as part of the custom of that day, as they came together, they would often share together in a meal, a common meal. It was called the agape or the love feast. They would join together to share in this common meal. Those who had a lot materially would bring a lot to the meal. Those who were less advantaged would bring what they could, and if they couldn't bring anything, they would come nonetheless. You might call it the original church potluck. The original church potluck. They would come together to share this common love feast. And these were very, very rich times in the life of the early church. They came together to spiritually encourage one another, to to mutually edify one another as they would repeat gospel truth, as they would search the Old Testament scriptures, as the New Testament letters began to circulate, and they would read and discuss those. And it was just a wonderfully rich time for those early believers. I mean, after all, they had made tremendous sacrifice to come together together In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of them had paid a very high social price to do this. They would have been ostracized from their family. Certainly the early Jewish believers cut off from the life of the synagogue. And even those who were Gentiles in coming together, they too would would pay a tremendous price as as society looked down on them and, and, and disadvantaged them in many different ways. So they were very much a pilgrim people coming together as this new work of the Spirit. And these were rich and wonderful times. The life of the church was filled with wonder and excitement. And you get that as you you read the early chapters of the book of Acts. You can can sort of sense the passion of those early days and how, how wonderful, how thrilling it must have been. But it didn't take long. It did not take long before sin and Satan insinuated themselves within that early fellowship, within those early churches. And as sin and Satan are wont to do, they kill and they destroy and they bring hardship and heartache. And Corinth was experiencing just such a dark and dangerous intrusion. Now, Paul had planted this church here in Corinth at great sacrifice. And he loved this church and he loved these people. But as I said, this church had lots of problems, lots of problems. And so they wrote to the apostle Paul. Actually, in chapter 1 and verse 11, he 
He alludes to that. They wrote a letter to him with a series of questions. They needed help. They needed to sort some things out. And so they they wrote to him a whole series of questions. And Paul is, is responding here. And in chapter 11, is what he is doing is he is responding here to the problems they are having with regard to divisions and factions within this local assembly. This church is being torn apart by division and strife within the local assembly. Now, Paul commends them in the beginning here of of chapter 11 in verse 2. He says, now I praise you. So he does commend them there because they have been tenacious in holding on to some of the teaching that he had, he had brought to them about, in this case, women's, uh, the women's role and head coverings and things like that. And so, so they had been tenacious in that area, and he praises them for that. But when it comes to this important topic of the Lord's table, they are way out to lunch. They are out to sea. They're badly messed up. And in particular, what their problem is here is is that this love feast that that is to precede the the celebration of of the communion together is is being conducted in such a way that that it betrays everything that the communion stands for. Instead of becoming helpful, it has become harmful. It is becoming degrading to the the very act of of celebrating the Lord's table. Crazy as it sounds, uh, that which is designed to build the church up is, is, is tearing the church down. It is tearing the church down. In effect, you could say their, their meetings are doing more harm than they're doing good. So this is a very, very serious problem specifically what is happening well specifically it's this that that at the at this common meal verse 17 at this common meal when they when they come together the class distinctions that exist within the fellowship are are bubbling to the surface they're bubbling to the surface here in a, in a celebration that is, that is meant to express the unity of the church, you know, over in chapter 10, for example, verse 17, Paul says, There is one bread, we who are many are one body, but we all partake of the one bread. That which is designed to express unity in, in reality is creating division. And Paul has heard about this, right? He says, You come together not for the better, for, for, for the worse, and, uh, and he says, I hear, verse 18, that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe that. I believe that. He says, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. There are divisions among you. Schisms. Factions. Cliques. Here within the, within the local body. People are, are becoming alienated from one another. Oh, they're being alienated along the the standard lines that divided society in that day. Rich, poor, Jew, Greek, slave, free. In the case of Corinth, gifted, ungifted. And so the the church is beginning to polarize. The church is, is beginning to isolate. Now, at this point in time, it's, it's probably not a, an overt uh, 
outward separation. It's not like they're just meeting together in little groups. They're still coming together. But what Paul is saying is, is inwardly they're being alienated one from another. They're being alienated one from another. Now, Paul, he's a, he's a wise student of human nature, and, and so he knows that, that, that division is inevitable. Verse 19, right? For there must be factions among you. It is inevitable that, that, uh, that there will be factions that will occur from time to time when a church gathers. That's a sad reality of life in a broken world. Even in those early heady days, it did not take long for sin to manifest itself. Paul knows that. And it's interesting what he says here. He says, for there must be, and this, this uh, verb must, it, it speaks of, of, of the inevitability. For there must also be factions among you. But notice what he says. So that those who are approved may become evident among you. It's an interesting statement. What he is saying is, essentially, uh, I realize, I understand that, that when a group of people get together who name the name of Christ, that, that it is inevitable that things will occur that will create some factions. And these factions are like magnets. They're like magnets, and, and they attract the unsound and the unstable But they leave the genuine believer approved by their steadfastness. You notice it there in verse 19. There must be factions so that, with the result that, those who are approved become evident among you. This is hard to to fathom. It's hard to fathom. God hates division among his people. God hates division. But in the providence of God, hold on to this, in the providence of God, even in the midst of division, God's purposes are fulfilled. They are fulfilled. Division serves to sift out those who are divisive, those who are disloyal, those who who reject the unity of the body. In an application, I think, of Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for what? For good. In an application of Romans 8, 28, even the evil of division can bring about good. It can purify a church. Now, specifically, verse 20. He says, when you, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, wait a minute. They might say, wait a minute. I thought that's what we were doing. We come to eat the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, no. You are coming together. You're eating. But you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You have have missed the point of the Lord's Supper. By your very actions, you're you're guilty here of, of nullifying, even perverting the purpose of the Lord's Supper. You may have communion in an outward sense, but, but it is communion without substance. Without substance. 
Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. The reason that although they may go through the ceremony of the Lord's Supper, the reason they are not actually taking the Lord's Supper is because there is no communion. There's no, there's no communion. Beloved, the cup and the, and the little piece of bread are a cup and a little piece of bread. There is, there is, there is nothing in the bread and the cup as a bread and cup. It is what they symbolize that is the reality. And to take it and to deny the reality of it, Paul says is to not take it at all. Is to not take it at all. All you got was a crumb on your tongue and a little bit of juice to wet your whistle. That's all there is. No communion. No partaking together. Why? Verse 21. Why? Because they don't wait for each other to eat. They all sit down and eat. It'd be like a family coming to the dinner table. Each one goes, you know, gets, goes to the stove, gets their food, puts it on their plate, walks over to the dinner table, sits down and starts eating. They don't wait for their brothers, their sisters, their father, their mother. They don't sit down together. They don't wait together. They don't, they don't lift their forks at the same time to partake of the meal together. It's just each one getting their own. I got mine. You get yours. Clicks had formed. The food now is, is not being evenly distributed. The rich who bring the lion's share of the food, they eat the lion's share of the food. The poor, they don't get enough. This is a slave society. Many of the poor here in the early church, it's likely they couldn't get to the meeting on time. It's not like you call your, you know, you tell your boss, hey, it's five o'clock, I'm punching out, I got, you know, I got church tonight. These are slave people. To get away at all would be amazing. But those with, with the material wealth, they're unconcerned. Unconcerned that their brothers and sisters who are, who are less advantaged than they, than they are, no control over their lives, over their schedule. When they get there for the love feast, there's nothing left but crumbs. Nothing left but crumbs. Paul's speaking to the rich here. And he says, verse 22, they are guilty of two serious offenses. Number one, they are despising or they are bringing contempt upon the church of God. Notice how he begins, verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? And shame those who have nothing. They are guilty of, of despising. That is bringing contempt upon the church of God. That which is designed to, to help us remember the, the preeminently selfless act of Christ. 
when he came to this earth to die to redeem his people, has instead become an occasion for selfishness. The right of unity has become a riotous disunity. And Paul says, you are despising the church of God. Those are strong words. Strong words. Beyond that, secondly, you are humiliating the poor. You are humiliating the poor. The poor don't have as much as you. They bring what they can. Some can bring nothing at all. And you shame them. Now, exactly how they shame them, we could only speculate. But somehow, in the, in the gathering together, it is evident that those who have a lot make it well known. And those who have little feel like they need to shrink back in shame. Beloved, fellowship cannot exist in that environment. It cannot exist in that environment. It is so destructive. Notice Paul, he says here, Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Basically what he's saying to them is, is listen, you can, get, you can get fed at home. You can get fed at home. So the fact that you are doing this leads me to believe that you, that you are deliberately doing this. You are deliberately displaying your wealth and shaming the poor. Very, very sharp rebuke here. Very sharp. Many, many, many years ago, our family was part of a fellowship in another city. And um, they just, the, the church leadership decided to, that they wanted to celebrate a meal together, a picnic. They were going to have a picnic. Everybody likes a picnic, right? Church picnic. Everybody up for church picnic? You up for church picnic? Come on, let me see those hands. Okay, Memorial Day weekend, we're having a church picnic, and we're looking for helpers. Okay? Memorial Day picnic. Everybody loves a church picnic. So this church we were part of, they were having a church picnic, and they decided that they were going to, they were going to bring in a, a company that was going to, to provide roast chicken, barbecued chicken. For everybody. That sounds, oh, that sounds really good. Barbecue chicken. We're going to come to the church picnic and barbecue chicken. But then the catch. It was $12 per person for the barbecue chicken. Our family, we couldn't afford. We had four children. We couldn't afford barbecue chicken. And we weren't alone. So we packed our picnic. They said, you know, come. We want you to come. Just, you know, Bring a picnic lunch with you or something. So we packed sandwiches, and, and we came, and we weren't alone, as I say. Um, and so, but we find ourselves sitting on a blanket eating our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while another half of the church is having these tremendous, you know, they're walking by with plates of barbecue chicken and all of the fixings, and it smells amazingly good. And I've never forgotten it. Because I thought to myself, well, that which was designed to promote unity and fellowship within the body, became an occasion where it was clear to everybody who had money enough to buy barbecue chicken and who did not. And who did not. 
Now, these people didn't, it wasn't designed to do that. It was an inadvertent consequence. But it can happen so easily. So easily. We who have a lot give no thought to those who are in much more difficult circumstances than we are. It was a perverse problem in Corinth. Paul responds by laying out for them the profound purpose for communion. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul condemns their their behavior here because it is a direct violation of that which he had received himself by the word of the Lord. Directly. The Spirit of God had, had communicated through the risen Christ himself to Paul instructions for how the communion meal was to be celebrated and what it all meant. I received from the Lord, he says, that which I also delivered to you. I have instructed you about these things. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. You think about that. You think about that. While Judas' traitorous scheme was in progress... Jesus institutes this memorial meal. This memorial meal. One of his closest followers is is busily betraying him on his way to the Sanhedrin to, to gather the soldiers to come back and to arrest him. And at the same time, Jesus is giving to the church a lasting picture of what it means to be selfless and sacrificial in his love for them. This was the Passover meal that Jesus transforms. All Jews, all faithful Jews would participate in the Passover meal together. Typical Passover would begin with the host of the feast announcing or pronouncing a blessing over a cup of red wine. And then that cup would be passed to those around the table of the feast. This is the first of four cups. They would celebrate four cups together. After the first cup was drunk, then then bitter herbs were, were dipped into a kind of a fruit sauce, and they were eaten while the meaning of Passover was explained to them. Then they would sing together. They would sing uh, the first part of what's called the Hallel uh, songs. Uh, Hallel means praise psalms. It's Psalm 113 through 118. And they would, they would sing together some of those. Then a second cup would be passed. After the second cup was passed around, then the, then the host of the feast would, would break the unleavened bread and, and distribute it. 
to them. And after this, uh, they would eat a common meal together, and the meal would be a roasted lamb. And they would pray. There would be a third cup that would be passed around, and the rest of the Hallel Psalms would be sung. That third cup, by the way, is the cup that is spoken of here. And then the feast would end with a fourth cup, and the, and the fourth cup was, was in celebration of the coming kingdom. And it would, be, it would be drunk immediately, and then the feast would end. It is the third cup of the feast that Jesus transforms into what we know as the communion cup. Verse 24, when he, that is Jesus, had given thanks, Eucharistus is the, is the Greek where we get the word Eucharist from it. When he had given thanks, right, he, he, uh, he broke the bread. He broke the bread. And, and by the way, John is very um, uh, dedicated to point out to us in John's gospel, John 19 and verse 33, that not a bone of Jesus was broken. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus was not, his bones were not broken for us. So the breaking of the bread is not the, to symbolize his body being broken. The bread is broken in order to hand it out. Okay, in order to hand it out. So it is broken. It says, when he had given thanks, he, he broke the bread and he, he handed out. Jesus is the host of the feast here. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The distribution here of the bread is to, is to symbolize that all are going to participate. All those who are his participate in his death. This is my body, he says. Now listen, uh, the bread doesn't become his body. Okay, The bread does not become his body. Contextually, the, the this here refers back to the bread. The this is my body refers to the bread that has previously been broken. It is the bread that he's holding in his hand. The bread symbolizes the, the, the body of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, given un, you know, unselfishly, given on the cross. This is my body, he says. For you. Given for you, right? This is my body, which is, verse 24, for you. That is in the place of you, on beh- in behalf of you. Jesus gave himself in the place of, on behalf of, his people. Right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians in five, in verse, chapter 5 and verse 21... He who knew no sin became what? Sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay? He gave his body in the place of or on behalf of us. This is my body which is given on your behalf. Do this. By the way, notice he doesn't say eat the bread. He says do this. And I think, that, I think what he's talking about is this This. This ceremony here, this, this breaking, this distributing, this eating. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. The Passover was given by God to the people of Israel to be celebrated every year that they might never, ever, ever forget 
their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Jesus is saying, I am transforming this third cup of the feast here, and I am, and I am creating in it a ceremony to remind you, every time you take it, to remind you that I have given myself for you. I have been given for you. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup, here's the third cup, after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When he says the cup here, he's talking about the wine inside the cup. This red wine, it, it symbolizes the blood of Christ by which this new covenant is established. The wine here is a, is a poignant reminder of the blood of Christ. The author of the Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do this, same thing, you know, here it's a reference to the, to the cup. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. No prescribed time that it has to be done. But as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And as you do these things, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you declare something. You proclaim something. You openly and out loud yell out a truth. You proclaim the Lord's death, he says, until he comes. It's a sermon. Do you ever think of it that way? When we take communion together, it's a sermon. We are proclaiming a, an amazing reality. That is that the Son of God died in behalf and in place of his people and rose again from the dead that his people would have new life in him. And he is now one with them, and they one with him, and one with each other. And you will proclaim that reality, Paul says, over and over and over again until the Lord returns. Until he comes. Until he comes. Whenever we take of the elements, beloved, Whenever we take of the elements, it is a message of humiliation and then exaltation. Humiliation and exaltation. It is a, it is a declaration that, that the atonement of Christ is done, right? Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. Privately, what does it mean? It means that, that we have forgiveness in him and, and our fellowship is restored with God through him. Publicly, it is the means by which we have been made one in the body of Christ. And so when we take these elements together, we're, we're preaching to ourselves and we're preaching to each other. There's a profound purpose. A profound purpose. And thus there's a proper procedure. Because it has such a profound purpose, there is a proper procedure. Verse 27, therefore, in light of this reality, therefore, whoever eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Therefore, Paul says, verse 27, because of the, of the profound purpose of the celebration, it cannot be conducted in any old way you like. Paul says that, that the, the issue of the heart is the heart of the issue here. We are not to take of it in an unworthy manner. Now, the King James... Uh, calls it unworthily and that's unfortunate i think because it creates an an idea in people's minds that somehow we have to be worthy to take this okay Uh, newsflash you're not worthy nor am i and i never will be worthy and nor will you in and of ourselves so it is not about whether i am worthy or not to take of the elements it's unfortunate, that sort of idea, because, because it crushes those who are weak in faith. It crushes those weak in faith. They, they have misgivings. They're, 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 they're concerned that somehow they might, they might fall into the judgment spoken of here because, because somehow they're not worthy to come and to take of these elements together. Oh, beloved, no, no, no. Christ has given these to us as a, as a reminder of what he has done for you not what you have done this past week this meal is all about grace this is a meal about grace this is a reminder of the grace of god poured out through jesus christ participating in an unworthy manner means coming to the table in a careless, irreverent, and sinful way. And so, sinning against the body and blood of Christ. That's what he's talking about. When we come to the table in a flippant way, when we come to the table carelessly, when we we come to the table irreverently, without consideration of the profound reality that these elements symbolize, then we are guilty of shaming the body and blood of Christ. Specifically here in Corinth, what was it? It was there. They were acting selfishly. They were acting divisively. They were shaming one another in the in their in their potluck that led up to it. Paul tells us in Ephesians five that, that marriage, right, the husband and wife, is a, is a picture of the reality of Christ and His church. This is a picture of the reality of Christ and His church too. 
And just like a, a marriage that is not, not conducted in the spirit, it paints a blasphemous picture of Christ and his church. So those partaking of the elements in a, in a manner that is unworthy paint a blasphemous picture of Christ and his church and the reality of our oneness. It's an assault on all that Christ has done. Think of it this way. The person who tramples the flag of his country insults his country. He who treats the symbols for the, for the body and blood of Christ irreverently is guilty of irreverence towards Christ. That's what he means in verse 27, to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's a strong warning to be sure. But it is not to... It is not to crush the timid and the doubting. It is, to, it is to confront the careless and the profane. So how do I guard against this? Verse 28. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. Examine myself. Dokimadzo is the, is the Greek, word, or Greek verb here. It means to, it means to test with the, with the intent of being approved. To, to, to look, to examine, with the idea that you pass the test. What is it that I'm supposed to be testing? What is it I'm supposed to be examining? The attitude of my heart. I'm supposed to look to the attitude of my heart. I am to, I am to examine the attitude of my heart first. What do I think about my fellow believers who are sitting around me here this morning. Is it just me and Jesus and the rest of them? You know, I couldn't care less whether they're here. Half of them annoy me anyway. Or do we take stock of the reality that we, that we are one in Christ? And then there are implications for that. There are, there are outward implications for that, aren't there? And certainly one of the outward implications for that is that if there is some kind of, of, of uh, rift between a brother and a sister, some sort of, some sort of uh, relational breach that has occurred, then we need to deal with that. How can we come and take a meal designed to proclaim our unity in Christ when, when we're at odds with someone here? Beloved, these things should not be. Should not be. This meal proclaims that we are one in the Spirit. One in the Spirit. Paul says if we fail to distinguish or discern the theological reality of this new status in Christ, then, then we're sinning. Sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. It says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. That is, if, if, if we don't take time to, to examine ourselves and the reality of this, that there at Corinth, God brought about serious consequence, right? He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you asleep and the idea is dead. This is so important to God that, that here in the first century, and you, and you have to understand this, the church is in its infancy here. If this goes uncorrected, 
then the, then the, then the gospel is going to go off the rails. And so God brings very severe and significant judgment upon this local fellowship. He says, listen, there are, this is a reason why many, notice that, not just one or two, many among you are weak and sick. You are experiencing in your body the consequences of your sin. Some are dead. God has, has killed some of you because of this. He goes on to say, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. Then verse 32, he says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. God brought serious consequences upon this fellowship and upon those within the fellowship, but he did it as a loving father would chastise and discipline his children so that they might avoid the fate of eternal judgment. Very severe illness, weakness, death. But God did it for their good. For their good. We need to come to this table prepared in heart. So then, my brethren, verse 33, when you come together, back to their, to their deal, right? When you come together, do what? Wait for one another. When you come together, wait for one another. Don't everybody go to the stove and get your food and sit down and start eating. You wait for each other. You wait. The sad history of the church is that the agape meal was continued to, to be abused and, and to suffer abuse such that by the 4th century, the church discontinued that practice. It's no longer the universal practice of the churches. How sad, isn't it? That that which started out so well, that, was, that which the, these early believers came together. They didn't, sit, they didn't have a committee, by the way, who sat down and said, you know, I think we ought to have a, like a potluck on such and such a month. I mean, this was just love pouring out and coming together and wanting to be together all the time. And to eat together and to study the scriptures together and to pray together and enjoy the fellowship of the spirit together. And to, and to, and to preach the gospel to the world. And it goes so far off the rails that by the fourth century... We can't do this anymore. We can't do it. Now, we talk about self-evaluation. Just a couple more things here. I'll finish up because we need to take the elements together. It's been my observation through the last 35 years or so that the self-examination that people are urged to is often for your personal and private sin. Examine yourself to make sure you have no, no hidden sin, no secret sin, no unconfessed sin, so you can come to the table. Beloved, we don't eat in order to wash our hands. We wash our hands in order to eat. You understand? This, this table is not designed here to, in order to force you to have a time of private and personal confession of sin. We, we provide that every week. And you should be doing it all the time anyway. So I think sometimes the, the self-examination is too focused on personal sin. 
to the neglect of the real issue that Paul addresses here, which is, are we really thinking about unity? And are we actively pursuing unity? I've got a quote here for you, and I'll just leave you this to think about. A quote from Gordon Fee. He says, One wonders whether our making the text deal with self-examination has not served to deflect the greater concern of the text that we give more attention at the Lord's Supper to our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. I think he's right on. It is not simply by coincidence that Paul begins his corrective on spiritual gifts in the next section by placing that one again in the context of the unity of the body, all members being equally concerned for each other. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. Okay. So when I first became a Christian um, you know, I come, and it's the, the Lord's table, and we celebrate it once a month in the tradition in which I got saved into. But no one ever told me what to do while the elements were being passed. I mean, not that there's like a prescribed thing you have to do, but, but I never really knew what to do. So let me suggest a couple of things for you, because maybe you find yourself in the same place. You know, you're sitting down front, you get the elements first, you're not sure what to do. Do I shift it from hand to hand? You're in the back waiting, what do I do? Let me suggest a few things for you for, to, to be helpful, perhaps, okay? Here they are, real quick. What do I do before, during, and after? Well, here's some suggestions. One, prepare your heart. Prepare your heart through prayer. Pray and ask the Spirit of God to, to prepare you to receive these things and to, and to understand and to value the reality that they portray. So pray. Two, confess your sin first to God, then to one another. Listen, if you are here this morning, let me make this really close application. If you are here this morning and you know there is someone in this body that you are at odds with, do not take the elements. But get up. Be bold. Get up. Get out of your seat and go over and sit down next to that person and whisper in their ear, will you forgive me? Because if there's somebody you're at odds with, guess what? They know. And if someone sits down next to you and and says, will you forgive me? The next words out of your mouth are, yes. Because God in Christ has forgiven me. And we're about to take a meal together. To proclaim that reality. So confess your sin first to God, then to each other. Third, meditate on the meaning of communion. Go to some of those scripture passages. I've a few here. For example, Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Luke 22, 14 to 30. Here's one for you Revelation 5, where they're around the throne from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, right? It's the reality of it all. Okay.